We have a guest today that has spent a lifetime in professional baseball as a player and coach. More than 40 years in pro ball. More than 30 years with one organization. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! Our guest today coached for one organization his entire 32-year coaching career. He spent two decades as the Major League Pitching Coach, was a part of a World Series championship team, and had a front row seat for not one, but two perfect games while he served as pitching coach for the Chicago White Sox. Don Cooper, thanks for joining us in the bullpen today. My pleasure. I want to go back. You grew up in New York City, and I want you to talk about your childhood and growing up and then... The, the kinds of things that ultimately led to you being drafted by the New York Yankees in 1978. Well, I, you know, like you said, I grew up in New York City. We played every day. You know, there were schoolyards, there were streets. We, you know, it, different time then. Um, we played basketball. We played baseball. We, we played everything. And, you know, of course, I played Little League ball. I played high school ball, went to college in Long Island, and and we did it all. And I think that daily competition, and it was high-level competition, meaning like in basketball, the old saying was no blood, no foul. You know, we used to say no autopsy, no foul. Um, You know, we played hard, and I really think that helped me. And we did it every day. And I really think that helped me when I got into pro ball being ready to go every single day and trying to compete and, and win. It was uh, a very high competitive area I grew up in. And then I got drafted out of college by uh, the New York Yankees uh, at 21. And then I was off on my journey in the major to try to reach the major leagues as a player. Now, playing multiple sports, and, and I think most of us that are older did, was baseball your desire pretty much from the get-go. In other words, you played every sport, you competed in every sport, but did you always wanted to be a major league baseball player? Yes, I did. I, I knew I wasn't 6'6 and couldn't jump, jump out of my socks, even though I could jump pretty good for a six-footer. Um, I knew that wasn't going to be my avenue. Um, so I started doing basketball after high school. Basketball was for conditioning to get in shape and get in great shape for what I really loved and what really my passion was and dream was, which was to play in the big leagues. I, I, my, in the third grade, that was my goal. I wanted to be a major league baseball player and, you know, nobody could tell me no either. You know, along the way, I don't care who you are. You're getting told like, well, you're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not fast enough and things like that. I, I didn't listen to anybody uh, on that stuff. I just, you know, I just thought to myself, well, you're nuts. You know, <laughs> I'm going to get there. You know, and and I think people, no matter what their dreams are, whether it's baseball, basketball, life goals, you know, like real jobs, I'll call them. You got to have that that belief and that confidence. I personally believe the confidence 
and belief is the biggest ingredient to success at the major levels of any sport. I would agree, and it sounds like our, our childhood, you're just a little bit older than me, not much, but very, very similar. So you get drafted in 1978. We're going to talk about the fact that you spent 32 years as a pitching coach, but you did spend several years as a player. You get drafted in 78. You get to the big leagues in 81. You pitch in the big leagues for the Twins, the Blue Jays, and the Yankees, correct? Cups of coffee pretty much with all of them except the Twins. I had a little more time with the Twins. My story there was... Hey, listen, I have no beefs on, on what went on in my career. I, I always, you know, baseball is like you got to roll with the punches. And it's it's a, like, a lot like life. Things come your way that may not be right, may not be fair, and may not bounce your way. But you got two decisions on that. You can either crawl in a ball and let the world beat you up or make steps forward. And I was always the guy that, heck, I got to keep going. You know, I'm going to keep moving, keep trying. Um, you know, so... I asked, I did have stick to that's for sure, um, because it, it, there's a lot of things that go on in baseball, that, yeah, a lot of successes, a lot of failures. failures. You know, listen, I tell people about the Hall of Famers. You know, the Hall of Famers is strewn with guys that made out seven out of ten times. Um, I'm working with a high school bunch right now that are starting to realize that and uh, – putting things to a side and, and continuing to move on, you know, and, 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 and that's kind of been a model. I don't want to jump the gun here. I'm going to move into your coaching career. So th- this could get us a little sidetracked. But what you just said as it regards the failure, even you go to the Hall of Fame, pitcher or hitter, every single person that has a plaque in the Hall of Fame has failed miserably on a baseball field, Right. And one of the things, one of the things that I saw toward the end of my coaching career is a lot of people, very, very smart. Don't, don't fault them for a lack of intelligence at all, but very, very smart. And because they're very, very smart, let's say in math, they don't know what it's like to fail at what you're best at. Almost everybody that plays the game of baseball, what they're best at is playing the game of baseball and they've all failed. And a lot of the people now that are, running the game or influencing the game, one of the complete disconnects from my perspective is that they don't know what it means to fail. They've never failed a math test before. Did you see kind of the same well, thing? Well, I'll take it a step further. I'll take it a step further. Not only that, that it, most of them don't know how to fail, most of them have never played or put on a uniform. Uh, you know, so I think that's something that right now, it's, those that seems to be running the game. People that, you know, very smart, intelligent people, you know, most of them Ivy League people or or just real smart, intelligent people uh, are running the game and and numbers in in many different areas are running the games. You know, science, if you will. Um, You see that in the world, too, right now. Absolutely. Well, we might come back to that. But your last year as a pitcher playing professionally was 1987. Your first year coaching was 1988, and then you spent 32 years with one organization, the Chicago White Sox, the last, what, uh, 20 or, or 18 years in the big leagues. My question is, when you were done playing, so you finish up the 87 season, did you know you wanted to be a coach? Is that something you pursued, or is it something that just kind of came your way? 
That's a good question, Mark. Uh, the last two or three years of me playing, I was getting asked to be a coach. I got asked to be a coach by Toronto. I asked by Minnesota. Uh, my college coach got a head job with the White Sox, and that's how I got over there. But I had been asked a couple of years prior to me not, you know, not being a player anymore, an active player, to be a coach. And I said, no, nah, I'm not coaching. I'm playing. I'm getting back to the big leagues. You know, I was still – my eyes and my goal was still get back again, get back again. But then it got to the point where, you know, you hear the window of opportunity uh, was getting smaller and smaller smaller, and at that time was probably the size of a rearview mirror. <laughs> so I decided to take the, the offer to coach with the White Sox. I had it the year before, and I told, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, thank God they came back and asked me again the next year, and I, I, I thought it was time. And I, you know, I remember saying the first year coach, and I, I really had no regrets about stopping at that point. I think I tried to take my gift or gifts that I had athletically in baseball as far as I could, you know. And that's something. As I say that, I got a hit on this. I believe everybody's got gifts. May not be baseball, it's somewhere. You got to find out what those gifts are. Those gifts are coming from God, and you've got to try to take those gifts as far as you can take them um, because they're given to you to, for, for a reason. Now, that path, that whole path thing during that might get rocky, might, you know, there's some smooth spots, there's rocky spots, and heck, sometimes the paths change, but they're gifts. And again, I had some athletic gifts. There's many, many other people that have different sorts of gifts, musical gifts, mathematical gifts, as you said a minute ago. And there's many, many gifts. And you, I think it's important for people to find out, you try to find and look at themselves and find where their gifts lie. Obviously, to be a major league pitcher, you have to be gifted and you accomplish that. But your coaching career is one of the most remarkable, at least that I can remember in my lifetime. And actually, if the dates are right, if your first year coaching was 1988 in South Bend, our paths crossed. I was in Clinton, Iowa in 1988. It was my first year of professional first season. That was season. a dump, wasn't it? Clinton was, was a dump. dump. South, yeah, South Bend was the brand new stadium that year. Correct. You, okay, so we co- yeah, that's where we probably went. That was my first year coaching. Was that your first year playing? It was my first full season. I played rookie ball in 87 in Everett, Washington. So Clinton, Iowa, I got introduced to full season baseball by spending a summer in Clinton, Iowa. <laughs> you know what? I remember some sort of beer garden, but I also remember a pitcher that I had on my team who's been a lifelong friend. He got, he's gone into coaching. He's the bullpen coach now for the White Sox, Kurt Hassler, 6'7", lanky guy. And there was a bunt, and he and I told him with all the grace of a, a, a prying mantis, <laughs> he got off the mound, picked it up. He had real long arm action. The guy was safe by about 10 feet, and he threw it down the right field line, you know. And I, I, I gave him crap. Even till today about that one. That's kind of my memory about Clinton, Iowa. <laughs> well, that's that's a better memory than a lot of people have. <laughs> but so you obviously were very gifted as a coach. Uh, you started in the minor leagues in 88. You coached, I think, at most levels. At, yeah, at most levels. Then you were also a pitching coordinator. But then in 2002, you became the pitching coach in the big leagues for the Chicago White Sox. And you did that through 2020. 
And the things that happened, I don't even know, obviously, about the minor league things, but the things that happened in the big leagues that you got to experience are unbelievable, right? You were the pitching coach under four managers. Um, you managed a couple games. I didn't realize that. I guess I did. I remembered it when it happened. Joey Cora and That's right. I, I'm listed as a manager for the White Sox. Yes. Okay. Joey Cora and I worked together. I think it was first year Joey got into coaching. He was the manager in Kingsport, and I was his pitching coach. But you went through four managers. You managed a couple of games. I think there were at least two people that threw perfect games when you were the pitching coach for the White Sox. You did something, or the team did something, the pitchers did something, and it was probably the combination of, obviously, the pitchers, but also you and Ozzy, when four consecutive complete games were pitched in the playoffs in 2005. That will never, ever happen again. I can guarantee almost nothing in life, but I can guarantee that will never happen again. And then you guys win the World Series in 2005. That's just some of the things I know. What are some of the highlights of your time in those 32 years with the White Sox, those 18 years in the big leagues? Well, first, I got to tell you this, man. I, I, I am totally blessed guy. Um, you know, you, you said I was talented as a pitching coach. I don't know about that. I learned it. I, I learned, you know, I, I learned from other people, people that I looked up to. The people I respect, and, and I put the time, effort, and work in, just as I did as a player. So I wanted to be the best coach I can be. Um, and the things that I saw, well, you mentioned a few of them, the, the, the no-hitters and perfect games. Wow, to be a part of that, and I'm, the part I mean is sitting there and watching it. Um, and I can actually say I wasn't nervous or, or, or at all during them, you know. Every time it hit the seventh inning, I can tell you what I said, whether it was a no-hitter or a perfect game, I said, now it's real. Mm. Now it's real. After seven, I said, now it's real. Uh, because it just doesn't happen all that much. So to be blessed enough to see that, well, thank you, Jesus. Um, the World Series, biggest accomplishment in my baseball life. And as I was telling you before, I always dreamed as a kid growing up in New York, I'm going to be – I'm going to be the hitter that gets the winning hit, you know, make the great catch to end the game or, 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 or make the pitch to win the game. Never did I think I was going to be the coach. And I knew at that moment when we won, there's another blessing. Um, and I've been blessed throughout, you know, throughout. Um, I'm trying to think of other – any interaction I had with anybody, all of the players that came through, I don't believe that's an accident. I believe I was put in places my whole life. I was put in this spot. And everybody that was either was put in my life or I was put in their life, no matter how you want to wrangle that out, there's a reason behind it. And, uh, you know, I was there to try to help in any way I could. That's all I know. Those boys and, and men, rather, they, they went out and did their thing. And I, I was given a lot of credit. For, and, and it's great, I guess, because that helps you keep a job that long. That's how it happens. You know, you, you don't get it because you're a nice guy. You don't get to stay there because, you know, any other reason other than things are being taken care of. The job has been taken care of. So I, it was That spot was manned. I manned that spot really for about 19 years, 20 years. Because I was in the big leagues in 2000 and 2001, as the coordinator that was trying to help the pitchers get from the minor leagues to the big leagues and make that transition. Mm -hmm. I worked uh, with Nardi Contreras was the pitching coach at that time. 
And then, that you know, in baseball being so volatile, in my case, it really wasn't. You know, there was a regime change. Nardi got let go, and Jeremy Emanuel got you let go, and before you know it, here comes a, a new manager in, you know, and, and I was lucky enough to stay. And get, and get, my first manager I worked in the big leagues was Jerry Emanuel, good man. Um, and after that, it was Ozzy and Rick, Rick Renteria. Bevington was the first guy I had in my first day. So I was lucky enough to work with a lot of good guys, but they let me do my job. Um, I, I, I manned the spot, and I did what did it and how I would, would want to do it. Nobody uh, kind of told me. There was no guide manual or, you know, manual to follow. I, I just was uh, continuing my coaching journey then. But that was after 15 years in the minor leagues as a coach, learning the trade, going to two other countries, you know, to be a coach and learn that trade. And that I learned Spanish. That was a feather in my cap, learning Spanish. Um, to where that could help me relate to the Latino ball players that are coming over here. So, you know, I paid my dues. I, I, I worked hard to get the spot and get the opportunity I did get. And there's no question about that. And then, you know, again, blessed to be able to stay there that long. And all, like I said, I think of all the guys that came through and the conversations. What I really like about the big leagues is – any conversation I'm having with anybody about whatever we're talking about, it, not solely to baseball, any bullpen, side session, video session, and the game itself, those are the things. I wasn't a real, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like, uh, didn't love the media, dealing with the media. Uh, I, the travel, people say, well, I travel. Well, wait a minute. You're traveling on charter planes. The plane's waiting for you. The plane takes you where you got to go. A bus picks you up as soon as you get off the plane and takes you basically right to your hotel room. You're, you're traveling at the highest level of travel. So the relationships and the game itself and the conversations are the things I miss now the most. Yeah. And preparation for that game, you know, and as I'm saying this, Mark, I gotta tell you, it just pop things pop in my mind. And one question you know, we always had was, who, "Who's number one, two, three, four, five? Well, my answer was, "Whoever's out on the mound that day is our number one guy." Mm. And trying to prepare to win that game that day was fun. And there's no feeling like actually winning the game. Unfortunately, the other end of the spectrum is when you lose that game. Um, I mean. I woke up every morning as the big league coach, every morning, saying, yes, we won yesterday. Let's go win again today. Or son of a gun, we didn't. We're going to come back and win today. Every day I said that. Um, it was a lot of fun for, for a lot of years. It sounds like it. And, of course, I got to experience some of the things uh, that you've talked about, and yeah, especially the travel. Once once you get used to big league travel, it's like any other plane flight is miserable because <laughs> it is so yes. good. It yes. is so good in the big leagues. Yes. Or or you've got, you've got you know, we had the, the bucket seats or the, you know, the like first class, you know, seats. If you're going coast to coast and you're sitting in the middle seat of a Southwest Airlines flight, whoa. That's got, that'll be trying. Um, but, yeah, if it's, I, I, I don't like long flights, uh, not commercially. 
You know, like I said, if you're traveling from Chicago to L.A., well, it's not bad because somebody's feeding you, somebody's bringing you drinks, you got movies to watch, uh, the seat's comfortable. I had no beefs about that. That was a fringe benefit of all the hard work and getting the blessing to be the coach. You know, there's no life like the big leagues. You know that from being a player. Um, As a matter of fact, it, what we used to call it's, it wasn't reality. Reality is when you walk in the front door. You know, reality is not when you walk in the front door of the clubhouse. It's it's uh, it's fun world. You know, it, that's the way I always saw it. Absolutely. Here's a question I always like to ask when I when I come across people, maybe like Cam Bonifay, who was the general manager when I was with the Pirates. I saw him a few years back. Anybody, Dick Pohl, my pitching coach, I ask people like you guys who have been in the game so long the same question, kind of a twofold part to the question. In your time, for you over 40 years in professional baseball, much of that in the major leagues, what are some of the best developments or changes in the game that you witnessed? And what are some of the worst things that you saw change in the game? between okay. when you entered in 1978 and when you exited it in 2020? Okay. Uh, one thing came to mind is this was the best change. When I got to the big leagues the first time, I was the interim guy, I believe it was uh, 95, uh, something like that. And I remember saying, son of a gun, the ball is jumping off the bat. It was the steroid era. The ball was jumping off the bat. Little infielders are hitting opposite field home runs. They're hitting 20 to 20, 25 a year the opposite way. You know, balls are just flying. And not only home runs, but ground balls up the middle, bolts. And I remember saying, son of a gun, what's going on here? Um, You don't need a pitching coach. Just give the pitcher a suit of armor (laughs) and a pair of sunglasses to feel the lightning that's coming off the bats. And... It, it, there was there was a lot of things going on, you know, performance enhancers, you know. And when they changed that and they started cracking down on it, pitching, coach, pitching and, and pitching coaches rested a little easier. And that's not to say there wasn't pitchers doing stuff. I don't know, you know. Uh, that's not the reason why I'm bringing this up. But all I know is when they started cracking down on performance enhancers, Pitching started to rise. Um, another, another, another rule that, not a rule, a thing that changes, man, all the ballparks, in my mind, have become hitters' parks in many ways. Other than maybe Oakland at, at night, you know, L.A. and all the L.A. clubs, that's a little funky, daytime, nighttime. But every other ballpark is like, wow. In the Yankee Stadium, when you walk into the Yankee Stadium or Baltimore, and I haven't seen it this year, you know, but I could throw one out from home plate, you know, to left field. Um, so I didn't really like that. I'm not a – things I didn't like, rules I didn't like, I didn't like the man on second base in the extra innings. Let's play. I don't like clocks. I don't like we got to speed up the game because, you know, I got nowhere to go. I got nowhere to go. I'm fine sitting there and coaching the game. I loved it. I had the best seat in the house to watch the best game played by the best guys on the planet. I got nowhere to go. And, you know, if it took four hours, five hours to get a win, I didn't care. 
you know? Uh, I, I don't like quicking the game up, quicking the game up. Um, and that, that's just not me. I, I wasn't into that. So those, those are a couple answers I'll give you. Okay. I'm going to come back to your time in Chicago proper. But first, I want to talk about your final year, 2020, which was, quote-unquote, the COVID year. I guess we've had – we're in our third COVID season now. But that was the first one. What was that like for you with everything that happened, everything going on? How, what was that like for you to experience in your final season as the big league pitching coach for the White Sox? Different, you know, different, way different. I don't know what they're doing now, but every day we came in, we got tested. Um, you know, and then you find out that the tests were all crap anyway. You know, none of them were reliable, but you did it anyway. You, you know, taking saliva one day, some days they're taking blood. I, I, I it was different. I, I didn't like that, all of that part of it. You know, there were no fans in, in, in you know, in the game. So that takes on a whole different aura, a uh, whole different uh, feel. To the game, uh, I'm not a fan. Not a fan of it. Now I want to go back because when we spoke the other day to set this interview up, you mentioned something about what one of the things you learned during your time in Chicago was the reality of fake news. And as you put it, it's not just in one sphere or another; uh, it's it's everywhere. Expound on that a little bit. <laughs> There was times that I talked to people, and then I'd happen to pick up every day in the clubhouse. All of the media stories are there if you want to look at them, and I did. Uh, I wanted to be as educated as I could on things and be up on everything. But there were times that I talked to people, and the stuff that I talked about wasn't written the way I said it, the way it was supposed to be. And I started getting, you know, a little disenchanted with talking to people. Um, I always wanted to be accessible. And I was very accessible early in my career. But then I kept seeing it, seeing it, seeing it, and I just became tired of dealing with it. Um, so I realized that, you know, there was some fake news going on, and then I see what's going on in the world right now. I mean, nobody knows where to get truth. You know, where, where are you getting your truth? Certainly not from the mainstream media. So, and that's, I think, I question all of it. You know, and maybe that's my... Growing up in New York, uh, I, I'm a suspicious guy. Uh, I got my eyes open. You know, I, I want to look into it. You know, let's check this out. Let me do my own research. Um, and then I'll make my own opinions, you know. So, I, 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 listen, in a lot of ways, it's. I think they mean well. But I think everything is trying to get sensationalized and try to – you know, I, I hated that I thought that media was always looking, bring me the head of the man that lost that game. Mm. I didn't like that. You know, I, 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 I think I'm overall a very positive guy. And I don't like being around people that are negative, you know, all the time. And I found that they, some guys were writing from that standpoint and, and reporting from that standpoint. Um Heck, I had a conversation with one, and I said, listen, nothing against you. Don't take this personally. I'm not going to mention any names because I'm not looking bad. I'm just telling you my story. Mm -hmm. um, I said, listen, don't take it personally. I'm not going to be speaking to you anymore uh, because you're saying things about people that I like. You're saying bad stuff about people I like. Why would I want to help mm -hmm. that? 
you know, and our relationship from that moment on was ruined. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, that's the way. I, I, but I'm not going to waste time with that negative stuff. Um, it's draining and not productive. Yes, absolutely. So 2020 was the last time you had to deal with that. This is your second season out of and professional baseball. And it wasn't baseball. much because they were it, it wasn't much at all because they were restricted. They weren't in the clubhouse. Right. Right. You so know, they they had to do their interviews by phone. Yeah. Or like we're doing now maybe. Right. Yeah, Zoom or FaceTime or whatever. So 42 years in the game, pitcher, pitching coach, you're out now for your second season. What are you doing now? What what's keeping you busy now? Oh. You know, good good question. Um, I'm helping young. I'm helping a high school team here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm doing that. I got to tell you, I, I'll expand on this. After I retired, my first year, I had heart surgery, open heart surgery. Um, I got detected. Had I been playing baseball or rather coaching baseball, I don't believe it would have been detected. I don't think I would, I, and I would have been a walking time bomb. This is kind of where. God comes in again in, here. In my, I, I believe I was directed and led to this. Um, when I was let go, didn't feel great about it. You know, I knew it could end. And, you know, listen, I did it for a long time. I knew it could end. I didn't like how it ended. I felt a little bit betrayed when it ended because I had spent so long with that organization. I thought I was going to be, I was told I was going to be there, you know, as long as I wanted to be. Uh, but any case, I was let go. Uh, I had to get a personal care physician here in Nashville. I had to renew my relationship with him. They found some abnormalities. Uh, and before you know it, I got to go in and get some things taken care of. Because had I not, I would have been, again, walking around, walking time bomb. I had some blockages, uh, a hole in my heart. Apparently, I had since birth and a leaky valve. So the way we handle stuff, we okay, let's go take care of it. So we did that. I'm back. I'm good. As a matter of fact, I'm better because actually now I got blood flow. There are no blocks. Um, that was one thing that was beneficial. I think God led me to that. The next thing was my mom had a stroke. And about eight months after I had my surgery. So I immediately went to New York, to my home, in my house in New York where she lived. And I spent seven months with her. And I look at that as a blessing because just of the time we had together before she passed. And, uh, you know, I got to go back to New York soon, but she passed and then I came, I came home. Uh, I would not have had that time with her. So those are just two, you know, crazy situations, kind of bad situations that turned out there was some good in them where I got that time with my mom and certainly to get myself healthy and get myself well with um, my heart surgery. We are friends, I think it's what it's called, on Facebook. So I get a chance to see a lot of the things that you post. I see quotes from Thomas Sowell and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, two men that I enjoy quoting and reading as well. I see you unashamed of the fact that you are declaring Christ is king and kind of holding others that that think maybe they're going to take that position. You hold them to an account uh, through what you put on there. Is that something... Is social media, Facebook in particular is what I see, is that something that, that you're using now in, in trying to convey a message publicly? Yes, it is. Listen, I got off Twitter because it was a sewer. I'm not in love with Facebook, but I know a lot of people 
that I am friends with on Facebook. The stuff that I put out there is simply this. Stuff that interests me, that I like, that I think my friends would like. Also, what I consider truths. You know, because I'll also add in a lot of these things. I said, fact check this. You know, because, the, the you know... The message is not getting out, either about Christ and, and or truth. And the, what's going on right now, you know, with politics, government, the world, child trafficking, human trafficking, pedophilia, borders, Afghanistan, Russia, Ukraine, all of these things are extremely interesting to me that... We do research into all of this stuff, and there's no truth coming out of the mainstream media, so I feel like I'm going to put up my the truths that I see and I believe in, and for my friends to get another side of it that they may not be getting, and then they can make up their own minds like I do. Yeah, well, I'd, I just want to say I appreciate it. Whenever I sign on and I see some of your posts, I appreciate uh you doing those things. And I also very much appreciate you taking time. You know out what? Of I got to say this, Mark. I got to say, sure. I, I, I got to say this. I don't have a job to protect, yep. you know, I, you know, people, people, you know, whether it's vaccines or whatever, you know, they're being forced to, to take vaccines or they get fired. <laughs> I, I got a problem with that. Yes. Um, they're not, the government's not in charge of my medical. You know, no the government didn't come and say get my heart taken care of. I had to go do it. I had to make that decision, you know, on what I was going to do. But um, I, I think uh, the lies are plentiful. But the biggest truth I like to put out there is about Christ and uh, who has driven my bus. Who's the guy that dri- drove my bus? None of the stuff that I, I I've ever experienced has happened by accident. I've been put in places and. Uh, Again, I'm trying. I'm I'm trying to put information out there that I believe is the truth on any of the subjects that might you know you might see. And uh, the one, the biggest one for me is the kids. Um, that's how I first got interested in all of this politics about six years ago. Um, my wife was very upset when I came home after the season, and I, you know, she was upset because. She saw a disturbing number. The number was like 750,000 kids go missing annually in the United States. These kids aren't running away. They're being taken. You know, they're being tortured. They're being in pedophilia, human trafficking. And not only is it 750,000 in the United States, it's double to triple that worldwide. So it's a business. And we are into trying to help the kids and trying to save those kids if we can. And by shedding a light on that a lot, the only guy to really shed a light on that as a president has been Trump. There's no talk about this on the media. They don't talk about that on mainstream media. You know, I I personally think it's because they're protecting people and they're being told what to report. Uh, That's, that's not media. That's propaganda. That's not truth. That's propaganda. So I guess in my small way, we're trying to put put good, positive information out there, stuff that we we view as the truth. But again, the biggest truth that you can tell anybody is God sent His Son to die for you, Amen. on the cross. 
for your sins and left the Holy Spirit here to guide us. That's the biggest truth. I'm pretty simple with my faith. That that's that's it right there. Uh, and don't get me wrong. Um, I'm I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm a fall down sinner. You know, there's many days I'll, I'll I'll fail. But you know what? Like I said before about baseball, you got two choices: sit in the corner and let the world beat you down, or get up and continue to make positive steps in your life and your world. Amen, Don. I again appreciate so much you taking the time. Uh, to to join me in the bullpen today, and uh, it's great to I've get to know it. you. Uh, you know, I've I've, I've I've seen you from I've a been... distance, and we have mutual friends. But it's been a great great time talking with you today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I've enjoyed it. You gave me a a, a, a dose of Christ and a dose of baseball, and I'll go on with the rest of my day. Now I'm going to the Sound game tonight. They're my first game in town here. I've never gone to the stadium, so we'll go watch a baseball game tonight. You take care of yourself. Thank you, Don. You too. Don Cooper is, as he said, a totally blessed guy. Blessed both with his career on the baseball field and in his life on and off it. And to me, it's obvious. Whether he was playing or coaching, he came to compete and to win every single day. And though it appears his days in pro ball are over, they're behind him, he is still in the habit of preparing to win. And he does so by seeking to expose the fiction of today's narrative and to declare the truth of God's word. I'm thankful to him for that and for blessing us by taking the time to be a part of this podcast. And I think we should all reflect on the words that he said. Maybe they slipped by you. He said, I don't have a job to protect. From my perspective, so many within Major League Baseball and outside of it are refraining from exposing falsehood and speaking the truth in love because their job matters more to them than faithfully following King Jesus. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.